Obadiah reading from verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, all your allies have driven you to your border, those at peace with you have deceived you, they have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Amen. Obadiah verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and sh there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Well, let's pray together. 
The kingdom shall be the Lord's. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the kingdom, the power, and the glory would all be yours forever and ever. Indeed, as we hear your words tonight, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, here in Chalmers Church and in the hearts of each one who speaks and hears. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin by showing you two images, contrasting images, and Alan's going to put the first one up on the screen behind me. I hope these two images will help us to get a hold on what we've just read. So here's the first image. It was taken quite recently, and it's of the city of Petra in Jordan. It's a world-famous archaeological site and tourist attraction. I don't doubt some of you will have been there. Petra was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Edom, which is central to our Bible reading in Obadiah tonight. Here's the second image. This one's a, a still from a film, a movie, and it represents, of course, a scene in the city of Jerusalem, which had once been the capital of the ancient kingdom of Judah. And in the picture, Jesus, the king of the Jews, enters into the city riding on a donkey. Well, we'll come back to these two images later on. When Robin asked me to preach this evening, he said, I could speak from anywhere in the Bible I liked. And as it's just a one-off, rather than starting something I couldn't finish or diving in somewhere without much context, I wanted to preach a whole book of the Bible to you. You'll be glad I didn't choose Ezekiel or Isaiah or any of those. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, the fourth shortest book in the whole Bible. It's just one chapter, so all we've got is verse numbers. It's easy to overlook this little book of Obadiah, partly because it's so short and partly because it's a little tricky to work out what it's all about. I don't know if Obadiah has been preached here at Chalmers. I'm certainly not aware of having heard it. I can't find any sermons on Obadiah on the church webpage. The church I used to work at in Oxford, St. Ebb's Church, has a searchable online database of sermons going back the past 15 years. There's more than 2,000 of them. So with great expectation, I went online to see what I could find. And of those 2,000 sermons, how many of them do you think were preached on the book of Obadiah? Zero. Maybe not a book we're very familiar with. How many of us could honestly say we know much about this little book? Some things it's fair to say nobody knows. For a start, we don't know who this writer, Obadiah, was. There are 12 people in the Bible called Obadiah. There's a bit of trivia for you. But not one of them is likely to be the author of this book. The human author of the book is obscure but in contrast, the divine author of this book is anything but obscure. He's right to the fore. These are the words of God himself. Have a look with me at verse 1, if you've still got it open, page 772. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God. Now, you'll notice that God is in capital letters. In the Old Testament, we're probably a bit more used to seeing the Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, like you get a little bit later on in the verse. Obadiah is telling us right at the start of his book that these are the words of Adonai Yahweh. It's a rare compound name for God. 
which tells us that He is the eternal I Am, who's also the sovereign ruler of His world. It's a most solemn way to begin a vision. God Himself is speaking. So these are words that we can't afford to ignore. That's one good reason for us to read this book. There's another reason, though, why today is a particularly good day for us to be reading Obadiah. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week. Passion, of course, means suffering. And we remember how on the Sunday before His crucifixion, on the Friday, the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem. He rode in on a donkey, and the crowds joyfully welcomed Him, spreading their cloaks on the road along with the leaves that they'd cut down, the branches from the trees and the fields. And they shouted out, Hosanna, an expression that literally means, O Lord, save us. But by the time of Jesus' day had come to mean something a bit more like, Hail to the chief. It's a messianic moment. The crowd recognizing Jesus as the promised king whom God had sent to save his people. And of course, just a few short days later, that same crowd would be baying for Jesus' blood. Their cry, crucify him. The book of Obadiah was probably written in the 6th century BC. So what's it got to do with Palm Sunday? Well, there's a connection, and I wonder if you noticed it in the very last verse of the book. Verse 21, it says, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. There are two mounts, two mountains that appear in this verse, and they represent two cities or two countries. The first is Mount Esau, or Esau's mountain. And this mountain stands for the country of Edom. Obadiah's book's all about Edom, so we'll come back to that in more detail in a moment. But in this verse, Mount Edom appears symbolically as the object of God's judgment. And the second mountain is Mount Zion. As many of you will know from the Psalms and other places in the Bible, Zion is a poetic way of referring to the city of Jerusalem, a bit like if I say Old Riki you know I'm talking about Edinburgh. Mount Zion is God's holy mountain, His holy city. And we read in this last verse of the prophecy about a time when saviors will go up to Mount Zion or enter into Jerusalem. Now, hang on a minute, you might be thinking, if you're a good Christian, why are there plural saviors in this verse? It's a bit awkward, isn't it? We know there's only one savior. But actually, in the Old Testament, God sends His people lots of saviors. That's the word that's used. So, in the book of Judges, time and again, God sends the Savior to rescue the people. And it happens again and again through history. In a similar way, in the Old Testament, you get lots of Christs or Messiahs. The word just means a man who was specially anointed as a prophet or a priest or a king. But it's out of all these saviors and messiahs that Jesus, the Messiah, is the ultimate savior, the Christ. Jesus is the final fulfillment of this prophecy in Obadiah. There's another link with Palm Sunday in that last verse. It's the reference to the kingdom, a promise of the kingdom of God. Now, of course, it's true that this world belongs to God. 
So he's the king of creation right from the time of creation. But through the man whom he appointed judge, Jesus the Messiah, God's kingdom enters a new stage of fulfillment. You see, when the one who's both judge and savior enters into Zion's holy city, God's judgment is executed. His salvation is accomplished, and His kingdom is established. That's the promise here, and it all happens as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in anticipation of His death and His resurrection and His ascension, those great moments by which history is changed forever. Well, this evening, I want us to see together what this book of Obadiah teaches us about Jesus, the Messiah who's both the judge and the Savior. And I want us to see how these truths about Jesus impact on us in our individual lives, in our church life, and for our nation. So that's where we're going. There are two headings, and uh, if you've got a, a service sheet, you'll find those on the back with a little bit more detail. First, the Lord God, through his Messiah, will judge all who sin like the Edomites. And second, the Lord God, through his Messiah, will restore all his covenant people. So first of all, let's think about the judgment. In this book of Obadiah, the Lord comes to judge a country called Edom. You won't find Edom in your atlas or on your globe. It doesn't exist anymore. But in Obadiah's day, Edom was a country situated right next door to the people of God in Judah. Its territory was within the present-day country of Jordan. It's actually got a good reputation these days. Just a couple of months ago, the UK International Development Secretary, Penny Mordaunt, praised Jordan as a beacon of stability, she said, amid the conflict and uncertainty of the Middle East. Jordan may have a good reputation today, but it certainly did not in Obadiah's day, at least among the people of God. The Edomites were the original neighbors from hell. Right throughout the Bible, the Edomites appear as the enemies of the people of God, and therefore as the enemies of God himself. And in this book of Obadiah, God finally takes vengeance on his enemies. Now, I don't know how you feel about that idea. Some people get a little bit upset or perhaps even angry at the idea that God would judge or take vengeance on people. What exactly had Edom done to deserve this judgment? Well, I want us to see from this book that Edom had broken God's two greatest commandments, and that was what rendered them liable for judgment. So have a look with me. First, Excuse me. In verses 3 and 4, we read about the pride of Edom's heart. We see here that they broke the first and greatest commandment to love God with all their heart and soul, mind and strength. Instead, they loved and served idols, trusting in created things instead of in the Creator. If you look with me at verse 3, you'll see that the Lord calls them a people who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. The capital city of Edom was a, a fortress city they called Selah. 
Now, God is engaged in a little bit of word play here because the word that's translated rock in our English Bibles is the Hebrew word selah. You'll see that in your footnotes. When the Greeks referred to the city of Selah, they called it by their name for rock, Petra. And it's the city that uh, Alan will put back on the screen that we saw earlier on. As you can see from the picture, the whole city is quite literally carved out of the rocks. The Edomites really did live in the clefts of Selah, the clefts of Petra. It's obviously a natural fortress, isn't it? I have a, an office at the top of the, the mound. I'm a PhD student. And every day I walk through Princess Street Gardens right by the Castle Rock. You can clearly see why it's a natural fortress. You can imagine perhaps the defenders under siege up on the Castle Rock looking down at any would-be attackers. You know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. You'll never get up here. Perhaps we can imagine that in a similar way for the people who lived there. Practically impregnable. The lofty dwelling. It's why they say in their hearts in verse 3, scornfully perhaps, who will bring me down to the ground? Soaring aloft like eagles, nests set in the stars. Poetic language, of course, but you get the picture. Untouchable, sublime. Thanks, Alan. The Edomites didn't just trust in this great fortress city they'd built, but also, we can see in verse 6, they had treasures. And then in verse 7, they had powerful allies. Verses 8 and 9, it looks like they had wise men, mighty men among their number. It sounds impressive. But God is not impressed by this. Judgment falls on Edom's idolaters and their idols. There will be, in verse 1, a great battle and it's a battle that Edom will decisively lose. The Lord himself will fight against Edom. You can't fight against the Lord God. Verse 2, Edom will be made small among the nations, utterly despised. Verse 4, the Lord will bring her down from her lofty dwelling. Verses 5 and 6, thieves and plunderers will take away all that wealth, all her treasures gone. Verse 7, betrayal as her allies turn against her. Verses 8 and 9, the wise men destroyed, the mighty men dismayed, and then the terrible conclusion at the end of verse 9. Every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. The Edomites break the greatest commandment, to love God, and so they face God's judgment. Then in the next section, verses 10 to 14, we see how the Edomites break the second greatest commandment, to love their neighbor as themselves. In verse 11, they stood aloof from their brothers in Judah when God's people were suffering. This is probably describing what happened in 587, 586 BC when the Babylonian armies came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, raising the temple to the ground. We heard about it this morning from Daniel taking most of its people, prominent citizens certainly, Daniel included, off to Babylon as exiles. You might hope that if you ever experienced a day of distress or a day of dismay, that your closest neighbors would give you a hand. 
We had some new folks move into the flat next door to us, and they kindly invited us over yesterday for a housewarming party. It's good to get to know your neighbors, isn't it? If something goes wrong, you need some help, you can just knock on the next door. Well, what did the Edomites do? It's like your house has caught fire, and instead of coming around with buckets of water to chuck on it, they douse it with petrol. Verse 12 says they were gloating and boasting. They took full advantage of Judah's troubles. They were looting, verse 13, handing over the survivors, verse 14, presumably aiming to, to curry favor with Babylon or just to rub salt in Judah's wounds. Judah, the old enemy, was finally getting it. At least that's how Edom saw it. The way they treated their brothers was a mixture of hatred and indifference. Well, it was Jesus himself who said that the law of God might be summed up in the two laws, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in rejecting God and rejecting their neighbors, the Edomites took God's law and trampled on it, stamping on it with both feet. But the Lord God will not leave the guilty unpunished forever. Judgment will certainly fall. And God promises to judge this sin against their brothers as well. Verse 10, shame shall cover you. You'll be cut off forever. In the Old Testament, being cut off forever is the strongest sanction that God can employ. It's far worse than anything that might happen to you in this life. Worse than any pain or suffering, it points to an eternal destruction, damnation, we might say. All this judgment happened in history, not long after the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in 587, 586, and before 30 years had passed, the Babylonians who'd allied themselves with Edom turned against Edom, it was prophesied by Obadiah, and came to destroy it. Again, the great world superpower of the day, Babylon was used by God, and just like Judah, Edom had no chance against the Babylonians. Powerless. Look at verse 15, and you see the great principle on which God's judgment is carried out. God says, for as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or as Jesus put it, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, so what, we might say. Ancient history, interesting for the specialists, nothing to do with me, not so fast. It's at this point, verse 15, that the book of Obadiah starts to take quite a different turn. Up to verse 14, it's all been about Edom. But from verse 15, look who's involved. The day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Verse 16, as you, you Edomites, have drunk on my holy mountain, and the drinking here is symbolically the drinking of God's wrath, God's punishment. As you drunk, so the nations, all the nations shall drink continually. They'll drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. All nations will drink God's judgment. All nations will be eternally destroyed. This is a, 
a promise, a prophecy of universal judgment, a judgment that has to affect everybody in God's world. It's the judgment that Messiah will execute on what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. You start to see here then that for Obadiah, what Edom does and what happens to Edom is a picture of what we do and what happens to us. Because it's not just them, is it? Think back to Petra, that imposing city carved into the side of the mountains. Imagine one of its wealthy inhabitants, a big place in a nice area with all those modern security features, plenty of cash in the bank, friends in high places, degree certificates on the wall, a body that could turn heads at the gym. And that's half the folks in Morningside. And for the other half, well, that's where they want to be. Worldly wisdom, influence, power, riches, these things are all common currency in our part of the world, just like they were in Edom. And these things are attractive, are they not? If people don't have them, they want them. And I think we all know, don't we, how, just how much the human heart, our hearts, are tempted to run after these things, to desire them above all else. And then if and when we do get our hands on them, to love them and to be proud of them, that we've made them our own precious possessions. That's what the Bible means by idolatry. Putting things, created things, in the place that's meant to be occupied by no one but the Lord God, loving them, trusting in them, boasting in them. Idolatry might happen in pagan temples, or it might happen in fortress cities, or it might happen as we bow down before our smartphones at the latest objects of our affection. But you don't need a pagan temple, or a fortress city, or a smartphone, or any other piece of apparatus to worship idols. The only thing you need is a sinful human heart, and we've all got one built in as standards. As John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. So what's your cleft in the rock? Where is it? Or who is it? Where are you tempted to put your trust? Where are you tempted to run to when you're seeking security? Where do you go and hide? Or when are you tempted to, to stand aloof when your brothers and sisters are suffering or in need? Just to pretend you don't know, maybe, or, or worse, to rub salt in the wounds. If we're honest with ourselves, we can't say that these things that happened in Edom 2,600 years ago have nothing to do with us. Because we don't love God with all our hearts. We don't love our neighbors as we love ourselves. There's a bit of Edom in all of us, maybe a lot of Edom in all of us. There was a lot of Edom even in Judah, God's people, and they suffered the exile, God's judgment. God, through his Messiah, will judge all who sin like the Edomites. That's the first message of this book. It's a warning, I think, for, for professing Christians. 
that we don't presume on the grace of God and fall into idolatry, which is so alluring, so tempting. It's a warning, I think, too, particularly perhaps for those who are enemies to God and to the people of God. And that would include anyone who's not a Christian or a Christian in name alone. If you're not reconciled to God, judgment is coming. A day of calamity, the Bible's words, not mine, awaits. You might dismiss such talk as madness or mythology, but it happened in the past. God was right about it then, and God speaks now of a day to come, and He will be right again. Happily, that is not the only message of the book of Obadiah. Second, the Lord God, through His Messiah, will restore all His covenant people. Have a look with me at verse 17. It says in 17, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it, that is the mountain or the city of Jerusalem represented by the mountain, shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Unlike Edom, which will be totally destroyed, there will be a remnant from Judah. This is a promise of restoration, a promise of salvation. Obadiah says that the house of Jacob, that's the Israelites, shall possess their own possessions. That means that they will receive the promised inheritance, of the promised land. And it's all laid out for us in geographical specifics with place names we're not perhaps familiar with in verses 19 and 20, north, south, east, and west, possess, 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 possess. The whole land will be restored to them. It's ironic that it was Edom's ancestor, Esau, who's famous for selling his inheritance, his birthright, for a piece of bread and a cup of lentil soup. Esau despised his birthright and lost it forever. Well, what a contrast with Judah. The people there are promised that despite their sin, they will receive their promised inheritance. Friends, this is the sheer grace of God. Verse 18 says, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. It means that God's people themselves will help to execute the judgment. It's a total turnaround. Edom, up in her lofty dwelling, is brought down low. Judah is lifted up from her struggles to sit as judges over all the world. Mount Zion, itself once despised, even destroyed, is raised up as the mount over all the nations, made holy. This is God's gracious salvation, God's gracious restoration. What a wonderful theme. It's an example of what Jesus himself taught when he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we know this happened in history. A remnant did return from Babylon to Judah. But the ultimate turnaround, the cosmic turnaround that corresponds to the cosmic judgment we've seen in verse 15, this is brought about by the Savior who goes up to Mount Zion, God's Messiah. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born as King of the Jews. 
Now, at the time, the puppet king who ruled over Jerusalem was a man called Herod the Great. Herod was king over Judea, but controversially, he wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomian, an Edomian. Perhaps you can see where this is going. The people of Edom, who in the Old Testament were called the Edomites, by the time of the New Testament, they were speaking Greek, and they were called the Edomians. Herod the Great was an Edomite. Now, how there can have been descendants of the Edomites when the prophet Obadiah says they'll all be wiped out to the very last man is a small Bible problem, which I do have an answer to, and we can talk about it later if you want to come and ask me about it. I won't spend time on it now. But as you know, Herod the Great is famous for trying to kill Jesus, orchestrating the so-called massacre of the innocents, every baby under the age of two in the Bethlehem vicinity. But God protected his Messiah from this arch-Edomite, His parents, Joseph and Mary, took him off to Egypt. And 30 years later, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, not as a pretender like Herod the Great, but as the true king of the Jews. Alan, maybe we can put the picture back up, the second one there. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed, though, was not like the kingdoms of this world. The king entered his city in humility, riding on a donkey, His was no kingdom founded upon a cleft rock, the kind of kingdom that human beings could boast about. No, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, holy Zion, was built upon a much less impressive looking, but a much more wonderful and mighty rock. And that rock was Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, Petra, he recognized Jesus as Messiah. And this was the rock upon which the Messiah would build his church, a church so wonderfully strong and powerful that the gates of hell should never prevail against it. And this confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, is so powerful because Jesus himself is so powerful. He is the everlasting rock. There's a wonderful verse in Isaiah 26. Don't look at it. I'll just tell you about it. Isaiah 26, verse 4, which says this to the people of God, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God, both words in capitals, you only get that twice in the whole Bible. It's a very special way of talking about God. The Lord God is an everlasting rock. Why? Because Isaiah says, he's humbled the inhabitants of the height the lofty city, he lays it low, lays it to the ground, and casts it to the dust. Jesus Christ is the everlasting rock. And Jesus is also the rock who was cleft for us. On the cross, he suffered and died in the place of his people. Wonderfully, not just for the people of Judah, But the Bible tells us more than Obadiah perhaps knew that it would be for anyone who puts their trust in the Messiah of Israel and their hope in the God of Jacob. The prophet Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greater Obadiah because although he came as a king, he came also 
as a servant. And in Passion Week, Jesus was despised and rejected. He came to his day of calamity, his day of distress on Good Friday, and do come back on Good Friday as we celebrate that momentous day together. And he faced the shame and the agony of the cross. And he did it for his people, even for those who were his enemies. He gave up everything and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He bore the judgment his people deserved, and he carried their iniquities. He is the rock of ages, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. By his cross, Jesus Christ has become a cleft rock for us, broken for our sins, crushed for our transgressions. His arms are now a safe place for us to dwell. And whoever trusts in him shall never be put to shame. Which is why I can say to you, if you've never yet trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from the judgment to come, it is my job and privilege as a preacher of this gospel of Jesus Christ to urge you to do that without delay. See, trusting Jesus Christ is the only way to be safe from the coming judgment. And everyone's invited. Everyone is commanded to come. The door is shut to no one. We're invited to enter into Holy Zion's safety, to find refuge in the arms of Jesus Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. No other way to escape, no other way to be safe, but God has made a way. And the one who died on Calvary's cross rose from death on the third day. He lives, he reigns. The Father has given him life in himself, life that he's willing to share with all of us. There is a day to come, the day of the Lord, his day, and it will be a day of calamity for those who do not know him. It would be a, a terrible thing to meet Jesus Christ on that day, having not received from him safety and salvation. Now is the time of favor. Now is the time of salvation. Come to him. Many of us here, maybe most of us, are already Christians, and how should we respond to the message of this book just as we finish? It's good for us to remember where we were, who we were, enemies of God, objects of wrath. Without God, without hope in the world, we, we should humble ourselves. But at the same time, should we not give thanks to God that he's given us such a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is not wonderful. The gospel tells us our judge has become our savior. In his son Jesus, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms and in the call to live renewed lives of love as the first fruits of a new creation that he's bringing in. Let's repent of our, our disobedient hearts, our Edomite hearts, and let's encourage one another to keep on fighting against the ongoing temptations and the onslaughts that come, temptations to despise our birthright, to lose our inheritance. And let's keep on encouraging one another to follow the Lord. Let's rejoice in the amazing grace of God, revealed to us, revealed for us. And as we spend Passion Week 
remembering the death and, and then resurrection morn to come next Sunday of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be full of thankfulness to our gracious God. Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Just as long ago you judged evil Edom, so you will judge this whole world through the man you've appointed. But we praise you that you sent that man as a savior into Zion's city. And by his death and resurrection, you've opened up a way for us to be saved. Just like the Edomites, we acknowledge we sin against you. We put our hopes in our own lofty dwellings, our clefts in the rock. Please, this Passion Week, help us to remember Jesus' sufferings on our behalf and to put our trust in him alone. And lead us by your Spirit as we celebrate the Lord's resurrection to live for your glory with the sure hope in our own resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name. Amen.